Welcome to Security Heroes, a podcast by Athena Security. We share real life stories to help connect you to real heroes in the security world. I'm your host, Lisa Falzone. Warning, the following recording contains potentially disturbing content. Listener discretion advised. So joining me today is Lisa Terry. Chief Development Officer at Vistalar, a conflict management training and consulting institute. Lisa has decades of experience in the physical security sector. Having started her career as a police officer in Raleigh, North Carolina, before moving on to roles such as Chief Campus Police and Public Safety at Wake Med Hospital and Director of Police at UNC Healthcare. She is an expert in the fields of crisis management, emergency management, and law protection, and is the author of Active Shooter Response Handbook for Healthcare Workers. Lisa, we are so excited to have you on. Welcome to the Security Heroes podcast. Thank you so much. I'm absolutely pleased to be here. Awesome. So first to start out, when did you first save a life? Wow. I dare say that individuals who are given this wonderful opportunity to serve and protect hope that our service has positively impacted many of those lives that we've served. And it's in my hope, quite frankly, that my actions have helped to save many lives. Um, and I've also actually honored numerous officers over the years for his or her heroic act in the face of extreme danger. Few of them or us really want to take credit by expounding upon those actions. I will say that I've received a Medal of Valor and I was presented with the United States flag that had flown over our capital for my actions on two separate occasions. And that's pretty much all I want to say about it. I am proud of the work that I've been privileged to do. Awesome. Well, congratulations. Do you have a life-saving act that you're most proud of that you want to talk about? I really do not. I can tell you many officers that have worked for me, just they've done amazing things. We actually got to, I will say, when I worked with Wake Med, we went to Waveland, Mississippi, right after Katrina and set up a field hospital. And I had an emergency response team. There were 16 of us. And we took turns going two by two, if you will, to provide that scene security and close quarter protection because they had no uh, police at all. They were under martial law. So I'm very proud that we were able to protect, you know, pharmaceuticals and nurses and physicians that were actually at the field hospital performing life-saving seats during that. It was about 50 days. So very small situation there, something I'm very proud of. Oh, not small at all. I mean, thank you for your service and for your team service. I mean, that's a great example. So Just backing up a little bit, what was your experience as a police officer and later lieutenant in North Carolina in the 1980s? I can imagine you were one of the only females and would love to just hear about your experience doing that. Well, well, I could tell you, new college graduate, I assumed when I got hired into the police department in 1982 that I was being hired into this very enlightened and welcoming environment. Not so much. Many organizations actually had been conforming to the affirmative action laws because they had to. And those of us were some of the first women to be provided these opportunities were basically stuck in the middle. 
We were expected to fail, but we were forced to work twice as hard to prove our worth. A female police officer was actually expected to perform the job in exactly the same manner as her male counterparts. And a large part of that was to provide a physical presence. And for this job, the only real preparation that my college degree provided me was in report writing. You know, I had to work out at the gym and I ran twice a day, almost every day, just to maintain a physical presence and the ability to make it through that four months academy and then hopefully, you know, maintain the job after that. It was tough, but quite honestly, failure was not an option. And I'll tell you, those early days when I entered my career field were pretty indicative of how hard I was going to work as a female in this male-dominated arena earn that respect, I guess, and keep it. Yeah. I mean, that's just super impressive. I imagine it was quite lonely and really, you know, you're one of the innovators in that arena, being one of the first female police lieutenants probably in the U.S. So that's really, really awesome. Is there any kind of characteristics that you learned from maybe your childhood that made you successful? Well, I mean, I would have to credit my mom and my dad, you know, start kind of there. And then I was a child of the 60s. So my mentors were Superman and the Lone Ranger. I didn't realize at the time they were fictional and that they were men. But I think just, you know, having that, I didn't really think there was any difference. I was the youngest of six. So, you know, I think what I love is that We had to be physical at the beginning. That was the expectation. But so many women have come after me that have been innovators and bring such wonderful characteristics to the job that we can do the job in many different ways now. Mm -hmm. And to me, those are the innovators. We were just trying to be physical, kind of step up as, you know, a man. And it, it was very difficult to do that. So... So you can just tell me if you wouldn't mind about a specific incident or you could just general incidences in your career that created this drive in you to improve safety in the workplace. So basically, I can tell you about, I mean, there's plenty of situations, Mm -hmm. but I can tell you about one particular incident that basically happened to me at the beginning of my career, moving from the municipal world and to the hospital. And I'll tell you, it was, I have several to choose from, but this one was, it occurred many years ago at the beginning. And the health system where I work had an on-site laundry at their trauma center, and it served the entire system. The contract service provided staffing for this laundry. One of the members of that contract laundry service clocked in for work on second shift, and then he immediately left the hospital property and hid in a wooded area that bordered the city street where many of our hospital employees parked. Female social worker parked there on that street that day, and her vehicle was actually the last one parked there at the end of the day. As she approached her vehicle, the male abducted her, raped, and murdered her, left her in that wooded area. He then came back to the laundry at the end of his shift and clocked out, and his supervisor Never knew he'd left. And I can tell you that after we found out, we discovered who and how the murder was committed, we were able to uncover many warning signs. You know, the perpetrator had a violent criminal history, none of which had been disclosed by the vendor to the healthcare organization. Other female contract employees had claimed to their management that this individual was harassing them. 
in the workplace. Hospital staff members had been warned and prohibited from parking on that city street. But the city police department parking control did not enforce that ordinance, nor did they even patrol the area. So, of course, individuals continue to park there. Wow, that's crazy. So how did you and the organization respond after that? How did they change their policies? How did you enforce different policies? How did you guys learn from it? Well, I'll tell you a little bit more about the actual incident. How I personally responded later that evening, the social worker's husband actually contacted our security dispatcher and said his wife had not you know, arrived home. So they called me and I responded to the hospital. I notified our executives on call. And then we went out, my officers and I, and located her vehicle on that street. The only vehicle left, we were able to, you know, check the tag. As soon as we did that, I coordinated with uh, the police department's canine unit, and we started to search that wooded area and found her body and started to work in lockstep with the homicide division for a few days, looking at video recordings, our access control records, assessing individuals. You know, there was always witnesses and reports of suspicious activity. Of course, we immediately, one of the things that we did as an organization, we increased our security staffing scuttles. We increased walking escorts, as well as our access control on all of our campuses, not just that trauma center. to basically promote trust in the, the organization, the security mm-hmm. organization. And then our COO and I conducted town halls with all of our staff. Mm-hmm. We listened to their concerns and shared with them our initiatives. And at the same time, I was soliciting feedback from all the department leaders regarding any staff members who were either not reporting for work, or exhibiting any suspicious behavior. And I'm going to tell you, I believe that because I was a female, I began to actually receive calls from female members of the laundry service. Three of these females reported to me they had recently been raped by a male coworker who was no longer showing up for work. They stated that they'd been too afraid to report it until he was no longer showing up for work in the laundry. And of course, those reports really kind of changed the the whole situation with the homicide investigation. And they were able to find a suspect and make an arrest. And of course, we immediately closed the laundry and contracted with a service offsite. Wow. Well, thank God. I mean, this is like why it's so important to have women in these positions of leadership and power and really just like a heroic effort in bringing those stories to the surface and solving them. So thank you. Any other incidences you wanted to talk about and policy changes afterwards? I mean, there's there's been lots of situations. One thing that occurred, and you don't really think about this, the policy change, we started an actual threat assessment team that met Mm -hmm. on a regular basis, like on on an every two week basis. But we continuously had part of our organization everywhere that I've worked also had medical school you know, for students. And they actually worked in the hospital while they went to school. So occasionally those students might, for various reasons, be eliminated from coming back to the school or to the hospital. There was one medical student who basically, you know, was told not to come back to the hospital. And eventually he was, he had to leave school. We didn't really know what was going on with him. Kind of behind the scenes, he'd been admitted to various behavioral health inpatient hospital. He never came back as a student, but once a year, we would get these threats 
from an anonymous source for various deans of the school, for just individuals that were leaders throughout the organization and in the hospital. We really would happen at a certain time of the year and it would go on. It was always anonymous. So we really didn't know. And we really started going back once we formed this threat assessment team and looking at the past five years, what had happened. We found out this gentleman, these were some of the things that he was doing while he was a student at the hospital. And we also found out that he was sending $5 every year to the foundation of the hospital. And what that did is it put him in line to get these emails and newsletters. We found out that when he would find out who the new executives were, who the new deans were, and he was still very angry about. So we were able to start sending him thank you letters instead of putting him you know, on this list to receive all of this information. So the threat was the workplace violence. And I think, you know, that's the good thing about uh, healthcare. Joint Commission actually came out in 2021 with a definition of what is workplace violence and threats, intimidation, bullying, not just those assaults, but all sorts of things that kind of go with that are considered workplace violence. Totally. You know, and you, I mean, you wrote a book about active shooters. Do you want to talk about any kind of active shooter incidences that, you know, either learned from then implemented policies later, or you think you helped save or your organization helped prevent? So we've had, unfortunately, either active shooter events or near misses in several organizations where I've worked. One just so happened that it was New Year's Day actually New Year's night evening. And we had just opened a brand new fitness center. And it was like January 1st. They really wanted to open it that day. It was kind of a new, get everyone, you know, really excited. So we'd actually just conducted, probably had conducted uh, workplace violence and active shooter training with all of the new employees in this new space. But what happens when you have a new, brand new building, brand new space, there's a lot of what they call punch list items, you know, that have not been finished. So you've got all sorts of vendors and contractors kind of there on that campus for probably a few months, mm-hmm. kind of finishing up various things. So the staff were really used to having those individuals on campus. So kind of that's the background. So it just so happened that a gentleman had in Eastern North Carolina, I think it was a, either an AR-15 rifle, and he strapped it on his back. He went into a Dollar General store and just started wandering around. And of course, they called the local police. They were able to identify this individual. And he's a, a veteran and, you know, pretty much told him you can't just walk around armed to the terror of the public. You need to get in your vehicle. And he didn't have any criminal history. So they let him go and he put it away and ended the call. About two hours later, in another city, small town, in another Dollar General, they called the police, the local police or the sheriff's department. And there was this gentleman walking around with this AR-15 on his shoulder inside the store. So these individuals who didn't really know about the other situation uh, identified him, found out he was a veteran. Sir, you can't walk around. You need to put it in the car. You're scaring people. Okay, no problem. So he comes on down the road with three more hours. It's actually dark now. And this is all New Year's evening. Nobody, the left hand doesn't know the right hand's going on. He parks in the parking lot of our fitness center that we just opened. 
he could see from the interstate. He saw the big sign kind of identifying us. He pulls into the parking lot. Plenty of cameras, which were great for later, but nobody really watching those cameras. He gets his, his AR. He gets a couple of handguns, two bags full of ammo, and decides um, to walk into the fitness center. But he did not want to go in the front. He wanted to kind of find another way in. And he happened to see this one door that was glass that happened to go into a break room where one of our staff members was having a break. Well, she sees this guy coming up, you know, jeans, mirror, just like many of the individuals that had been working there all week trying to finish up all of the, the punch slips. And she opens the door for him and she said, you need to go down those steps and into the mechanical room. You don't come in this way. You go in that way. So he agreed and that's what he did. And as he turned going down the steps, he notices he's got an AR-15 on his back and it's not a typical contractor. So she locks the door. She makes the call. Everybody goes into everything that we taught them. And children, we had every kind of individual you can imagine there. But they all went into safe areas. And But the gentleman decides, you know, he doesn't have a, a card to get into the maintenance door. So he takes a semi-automatic handgun and shoots the door an entire magazine, 20 or 30 rounds that he had. It didn't open. He took another firearm and shot it. Finally, it jarred enough that he could go into that area. And of course, they've already called the police who were en route, found his way downstairs in the maintenance area and leaves all of his things, which we see this because of our cameras. He leaves everything in there and decides to go into the uh, stairwell so he can see how to make his way upstairs where everybody is. So he gets into the stairwell, and then he's locked. He can't go back into the maintenance area. He can't go upstairs to the pool area. So he decides to light a fire and hope that the fire alarm will go off. So by some grace, he was separated from his firearms. So that when the police came and were able to do their search of the building, they were able to, to take him down with a less lethal method and take him into custody. So... I guess the moral of the story is I was called in. We're all kind of there after the fact because this was, you know, off our campus. But lots of changes. Number one, everybody did exactly what they were supposed to do based on that training. They knew how to, to you know, find a safe area. They knew how to lock themselves in the barricade. The call for the police once everybody was in a, what they felt like the safe area as possible. And then leave once they knew the police were there and they directed them out. They didn't really know where this gentleman was, so they didn't do the run part of evacuating the building. But a lot of those changes that we were isolated, we were not working with local police. Mm -hmm. um, and, and quite honestly, after that, I was privileged to be a member of NFPA 3000 Technical Committee, which occurred, which was formed right after the Pulse nightclub incident. So we actually started, we met for 18 months to develop some good some guidelines that were, you know, the 5,000 foot view that really helped everybody work together. So that, you know, the first gentleman, the first officer should have maybe sent an administrative message for, you know, 100 miles so that other police departments would right. know the situation occurred. So lots of things that occurred, we wanted to make sure that we brought all that, all those cameras, you know, from an IP standpoint back to a centralized security operations center. 
because mm-hmm. they were not at that time. Mm-hmm. We'd see that as being, you know, as violent as mm-hmm. another area. So lots of training, lots of things that changed that whole setup. That's amazing. I mean, not amazing that it happened, but what a crazy story and really great what you put in place. It seems like with the shooter being caught in the stairwell, it seems like that access control is pretty key to kind of de-escalating you know, the situation. And, you know, honestly, that was one of the reasons why we got into this industry was looking at these cameras and saying, okay, well, you know, the crime is being caught on camera, but like, it's just after the fact, right? You're not doing anything to stop it. So it's really cool that you guys then centralized and then probably got someone watching it to then look at it and say, hey, here's an alert and work with the police officers around the area. So something that is important to me is you're going to have some of these either metal detection or any type of weapons detection. Mm-hmm. You can't just say this is the only place individuals with a firearm are going to enter the building is that emergency department yeah. or that main entrance. And I think you've really got to think through if someone is coming to do harm, they're going to look for that area, just like this gentleman did, that he can sneak in, find a way to, to get to where the most number of people are. Yeah, I mean, we recommend obviously doing metal detection or concealed weapon detection at every single entrance, even employee entrances. It's amazing. That is where a lot of crime is happening, not just in hospitals, but, you know, other places, too. So, yeah, I mean, just thank you so much for your service. Again, it's just really heroic hearing this, hearing these stories. It's very inspiring. So. Just to change the subject a little bit, we can kind of go back to specific incidences if you want to, but what tech are you currently working with that you feel will improve security while also representing a better ROI for the organizations? So I personally continue to work with not only weapons detection, but also incident tracking and reporting technology. Mm -hmm. I feel like those are how we really can compare and contrast. You know, always need analytics. You need to have symmetric. So one of the things that I have found success in is I track security incidents, then the workers comp claims for workplace violence. Those claims that are, you know, specifically, I didn't just fall, but, you know, this is, I was hit or whatever. There's a few other risk factors. So once you have those and you track them over time, then I'll add in whatever mitigation actions based on those risk factors. And that may include additional weapons detection, change mm. security staffing, enhanced non-escalation and conflict management training, as well as other physical improvements or technology-based uh, improvements. And we'll track those and the risks over time. And then, quite honestly, I've seen significant improvement after those technology solutions and you know various training uh, has been added. Yeah, you're speaking our language. I mean, we're a big fan of incident reporting and connecting that with the weapons detection and looking at all those analytics and then being in front of the problem rather than after the problem. So what is your hope for the future of tackling workplace violence and how can it be improved? Well, you know, we live in a violent society. Sometimes, I mean, I love being an American, but sometimes, you know, traveling to other countries, I'm, I'm a little embarrassed because they all know everything, I guess, because of social media and just, right. um, you know, they know what's going on here. So I think in healthcare, we've got to respond it to it in a very multifaceted manner. It's my hope that we and some of our regulatory partners continue to respond by hardening the physical space as well 
with perpetuating this nonviolent, respectful culture as another tool in our belts. So hopefully we can prevent and mitigate some of the clinical and even the clinical criminal aggression in the healthcare environment. I mean, you've, sometimes we, because of our ignorance, and I'll, I'm talking about myself, we can perpetuate behavior, you know, not intentionally. So I think it's important that. How so? Um, well, if you really are, if someone doesn't, you feel like that you're feeling disrespected, or mm-hmm. if you're, for instance, I'm talking more in a clinical situation, if I come in and I've been waiting for five hours and I feel that nobody's really listening to me or someone speaks to me in a manner that is disrespectful, then I'm going to be very defensive. Right. I think it's very important that we really push. I'm all about hardening that physical space, but I'm also, I really want to make sure that we in healthcare take those extra steps to not escalate, to be respectful and to talk with individuals in such a way that we're empathetic. You know, I think... There's a few corporations out there that you feel good after going there. Or, you know, mm-hmm. when someone says my pleasure, you're just like, okay, wow, thank you. Mm-hmm. I'll be back. You know, and so I think right. something can really change that. Yeah, I think that empathetic approach is so key because it's like you don't, you know, you don't want to be an asshole and then that creates another asshole and then it just keeps escalating. And you do see that, right? insecurity. So yeah, I think just like a more empathetic approach, I'm sure your influence in the industry has helped with that. So yeah, I think that's really cool. So yeah. So just in closing, I mean, who in the world of security would you like to take to lunch? Oh, wow. So I've always been a student of national and global security. So my first choice would have been U.S. Secretary of State, and he was he's retired four-star general, and that would have been Colin Powell, but unfortunately, mm-hmm. he is deceased. So my second choice, I don't know if you, you're familiar with her, but she's a U.S. Air Force retired four-star general, and her name is Lori Robinson. Her journey in the 1980s, quite honestly, was a little bit like my own. We both started in ROTC in college. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that I like about her is a quote, and just kind of bear with me. I do want to read this. Our nation needs diverse voices around the table, whether it's a CEO's table, a joint chief's table, or the cabinet of the United States. The diversity of thought, background, heritage, race, and gender will all add to the capability of any leader to make a decision. It makes our nation stronger and better. Mm-hmm. And that is kind of my mantra. I love learning and, you know, me, diversity is what makes us all stronger. That's awesome. Totally agree. If you had one piece of advice or one guiding principle every organization should abide when thinking about their workplace security processes, what would it be? So I think that I would say to value continued learning no matter what. And that means, you know, if you're in a position to fund it and also promote. And again, that could mean fun, but enable your staff to live what I call left of bang. If you're not familiar with that book, it was written by a couple of individuals in the Marines, took some of the combat language, but they wrote it in a way that it applies to everyone. And basically, left of bang, that event, it could be that workplace violence situation, it could be an explosion, it could be just as simple as someone getting upset. 
And you want to live so that you are prepared for that. Left to bang are those proactive activities and, and actions that you take. So hope you can avoid bang. And right of bang, unfortunately, a lot of us and you know, some of us are always going to be right of bang, but hopefully that you learn so that you back left of bang, so that you rarely end up right of bang. And I'm, that's simplifying it, but I think really kind of promoting that type of uh, proactive behavior. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the disappointing things we see in organizations is that there's usually the funding for security and new security tech, more security personnel after the incident. So it's like, how to convince organizations to let's not have an incident. Let's put these things proactively in place so we can, you know, prevent it. I think that's, I mean, if you want to talk about that in your career and how you kind of sell that to the organization to be more proactive. So my success has been really going back to metrics Mm -hmm. and being able to, to understand how to analyze those because it all comes down to the budget and an ROI and, you know, who needs those dollars the most and who, how can we show the value for that? In healthcare, I think you look patient, how does that patient, what's the positive thing? You know, what's their outcome? Regardless of how they come in there, they have to measure a patient's outcomes. And being a part of that healthcare environment, you have to be able to speak that language. So if it's security, you've got to be able to understand how to measure outcomes. Mm-hmm. And doing that is really, as I said, using that those metrics and that data over mm-hmm. time and going, for instance, so the workplace violence program should be looking at those injuries. How much does it cost for someone to be recruited? A nurse, it's, you know, $50,000 to or more as an average to recruit a nurse if she leaves based on workplace violence. It's going to cost the organization. Right. And if you have 20 of those leave in a year, that's huge. And forget it if it's a physician. And many physicians kind of feel that same, that same way. So, I think that has been something that has, has always helped me is getting down and looking at the numbers because it's, totally. it is a business. Yeah, we had, I don't know if you know her, Mel Cortez from Cortez Gold on here last week. And she was a nurse and her whole thing is training the nurses to de-escalate, which I thought was crazy. I'm like, how are we in a you know place where these poor nurses are having to deal with violence issues? I think they've really been dealing with it for many years. One right. of the things, you know, some organizations will, they say they have a zero tolerance for violence, mm. but basically there will be patient generated violence. It's just the nature of the business, but it should not be accepted. We've got to make sure that everyone's trained, number one, how to hopefully non-escalate. It shouldn't mm. be to the point, you know, it may be the officer that's outside that said something that made someone mad or, you know, the receptions or whomever, but hopefully we can all be speaking from the same sheet of music and, and how we speak to one another and have that whole culture through the organization and be a team, you know, security. And right. we all should be a part of that patient care team. Everybody should be totally. on the same side. Totally. And I mean, you guys are heroes, just like those nurses and the doctors, you know, saving people's lives. I mean, your security teams are saving people's lives as well. So, you know, that's what we want to recognize and highlight. It's interesting because it's, and we were really surprised with this when we got in industry that, you know, healthcare really, it's just so much violence is happening, but people don't really know about it because it's not really in the news as opposed to school shootings, which are also horrific, but it's all, you know, all across the news and the healthcare, it's like 
people don't really realize how much violence is happening in healthcare. So hopefully I think we can... it's, there's that clinical aggression and sometimes that can move into criminal aggression. But I think, mm-hmm. you know, we've got we, we're a violent society. So you've got to harden, you got to physically harden where you're conducting patient care. That is just we have to do that in our society. But also inside there's that what I would call that insider threat, you know, not the typical insider threat, but it's it could be employee to, you know, supervisor or supervisor to employee or, you know, could be person to person or patient to a lot of patient generated violence for whatever reason. So we've got to be trained. We've got to continuously give all of our staff those tools to meet those those threats and, and that violence because it's not just the outside coming in. It's also inside. Yeah. And just for clarification for people not in the security world, when you say harden the security, you know, harden the entryway, uh, can you just define what you mean by that? Well, and there's there's lots of, you know, I'm a longtime supporter of IHSS and the guidelines. And we work with the Facility Guideline Institute, as well as NFTA, all of these regulatory and these associations that help you understand how to physically have better lighting, how to physically build mm-hmm. your emergency department or your behavioral health department or your entrances so that there are bollards, so vehicles can't drive through, so that you have gates, access control outside that would keep a big vehicle or that would keep individuals like the gentleman I spoke about trying to enter a door um, that he really had, is not authorized to do that. Um, in some urban areas, uh, we've we've had to actually install uh, ballistic glass in some of those areas, just not necessarily because people are trying to shoot into the hospital, but it could be a stray bullet that has mm-hmm. broken a window. So based on your risk assessment and your threat assessment, which are two different things, you really need to look at how you physically can uh, harden that target, harden that building. And, and that includes technology. Yeah, That's one of those additions, cameras, access control, uh, weapons detection. Yeah. And also, can you just define what the difference is between the risk assessment and the threat dis- assessment, which you just mentioned? Absolutely. So... Risk assessment has to go, you look at your full environment, your full community, and what are those risks? You know, how close are you to a transit station? How close are you to railroads? How close is your building to certain venues where uh, hundreds of thousands of people gather? And so it has to kind of start from the outside in. And you look at how do, this is where I'm located. Am I in a very rural area? Am I in a very urban area? Where am I located? And what are those risks? And take into consideration, what am I delivering? Am I tangling? You know, what are those risks associated? So being able to look at all of those risks as you're deciding, where do you fit? You know, it's kind of like a, a green, yellow, where, what should we do for our building? The threat assessment really looks at, or a threat management program, you, again, what are the services that you're delivering? How many employees do you have? How many are, are they parking off campus or, you know, the whole scenario. And some of those risks could be something that we really don't have any control over. If it's a, a trauma, a level one trauma center, then certain types of patients in the public are going to come to that location regardless. That's a risk that you've got to be aware of, but you can't really control. 
And then what are those risks that organizational, you know, do we have the right policies and processes to make sure that we're doing the right things? So when you're looking at your threat management program, you really have to look at more internally. And then how do we respond to that? No, that makes sense. Yeah. And it's ongoing. It's a, as I said, you really want to be looking at those because it changes. It's fluid. It may be, you know, you have one patient that's, you know, wants to fight every day, or sometimes there are patients that will be staying in the emergency department for a long time, waiting for a bed, perhaps in a behavioral health hospital, and there's none available because that in itself is another crisis. So a normal individual is going to act out in those types of situations. So just kind of looking from the outside in and right. then looking from the inside out. Thank you so much for that explanation. Let's just say I'm a 20-year-old, I'm in ROTC, I'm in college. I'm looking at what to do afterwards. How would you encourage me to get into the physical security industry? And you know, what are the positives? Oh, wow. That's a great question. I think you've you've really got to decide what is your love, number one. Mm-hmm. And do you have, you know, an affinity for, I would say, engineering? Do you like to look at how to solve issues? If so, the industry is it's wide open and, and it's every day something else is developed. You know, you can look at what's the absolute best thing we could do, whether that's national security or whether that's uh, security for university at a hospital and how would we was you know resolve it just put down kind of wave a magic wand and then kind of work toward with you know is there a company out there that is developing and you know open to new ideas because in my opinion the technology is there it's mm-hmm. just a matter of where we go with it you know ai is scary but it's also it's the future and how mm-hmm. we harness that is, I think for young people, that's kind of the next step. Yeah. I love that you're an innovator in the security industry. It seems like a lot of security people can be risk averse. And I just love when I get to talk to people that are in the security industry and they, you know, want to see new ideas, want to, you know, aren't afraid of, like you said, AI. And I just, where would you encourage people to go that are interested in, you know, innovating and also interested in innovating and being a part of implementing innovative tools in the physical security industry? Well, I have personally found that smaller companies are a little, when I say smaller, I don't mean super small, but, you know, mid-sized companies are a little more open to innovation. It's certainly, I think your larger companies may have the the backing, but it's a little more difficult to change it's like turning the ship around, you know, it's a really big ship. It's a little more difficult. So what I've seen is that they're not afraid of of failing or succeeding when you're a little smaller in that space. That's been, and you know, yes, we all want to make a million bucks, but I think you've really got, the money will come, Uh you know, go with your heart and what your gifts are. And then, you know, salary will be there. I love that. Well, I mean, it's just been an absolute honor to talk to you. Do you have, I mean, you have absolutely a fabulous career. I feel like I could talk to you for hours on all the heroic acts you've done. Is there anything else you want to talk about or just any other, anything else from your amazing career that you want to highlight? 
Well, I'm grateful. You know, I was, I think, again, I go back to starting out in the business. It was not my dream. You know, I really wanted to go into law school. That was where I was headed. My son, I think I've lived vicariously through him. He and his wife are both attorneys now. So I don't know if maybe I pushed them to do what I didn't do, but I found my love through that journey. And Mm -hmm. just because it doesn't start out in the way that you imagined, I think, you know, it's just been great to go with it and kind of see what's there Mm -hmm. and connect with people all over the world. I've been very fortunate uh, to be able to do that throughout my career and learn so much. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining Security Heroes and Again, you're a hero and just thank you so much for everything you've done and all the lives you've saved. It's great. Thank you so much. Security Heroes is brought to you by Athena Security. To find out more about Athena Security and how we help save lives through our weapon detection solution, visit www.athena-security.com. And then make sure to search for Security Heroes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Athena, thanks for listening.